Mrs. Marlowe, yes? Harper, yes. Do, come in. The words I have to say. It's a beautiful house. Would it just be you staying? Or? Excuse me? Mrs. Marlowe? No. Until you give your love, there's nothing more that we can do. Apple from the garden? Yeah, it was delicious. No, 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 no. Mustn't do that. Forbidden fruit. Oh, God, sorry, I... I I'm I, joking. I oh. <laughs> You're tormented. It feels more like... Haunted. Yeah. Something happened. My husband went upstairs to our balcony and let himself go. You must wonder why you drove him to it. Why I didn't drive him to it. I thought it'd be true. But if you had given him the chance to apologize, he'd still be alive. What? A man followed me out of the woods. He was stalking me. What makes you say that? I saw him twice. Twice? I don't know if he saw you once. Well, play a game. You hide, I'll see. You must feel an awful sense of guilt. Stay away from me. Hello and welcome to the Movie Robcast. I'm your host Rob Daniel and as always I am very happy to say that I am joined by my learned co-host Mr Rob Wallace. And as always it's an absolute pleasure to be here. And for this episode where we will be talking about Alex Garland's men, we have another man who is joining us. You'll have heard him before on some previous episodes and we're very happy to say that Mr Adrian Zack is back. So welcome back Adrian. Oh, thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Cool. So we're talking about men, which there's quite a few things to say about this, I think. I think some of the audience are probably saying, why haven't you got a woman on this one as well, Rob? We've got a balance, uh, to which we say... We don't know any women. That's, 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 that's entirely not true. <laughs> it's a good joke, though. Yes, we don't know any women. <laughs> but I think it's more a case of, like, it just shows the amount of planning we sometimes do. But it's still going to be a pretty interesting discussion with the three of us. So, Rob, before we get into our discussion of men, could you give us the plot synopsis from the IMDb? Sure. The ever-reliable IMDb. A young woman goes on a solo vacation to the English countryside following the death of her husband. I'm sorry, of her ex-husband, which isn't actually true. Isn't actually accurate. Yeah. I mean... He's her ex-husband insofar as he's not alive anymore, in, yeah, in the sense of being Monty Python, an ex-parrot. to be, yes. <laughs> yes, they are still married, aren't they? When it's, it's a drastic divorce. It is a drastic divorce. I thought it would be hard for the IMDb to get this one wrong, but they always rise to the occasion. So yes, this is basically Jesse Buckley plays Harper, who is a woman who, as the IMDb says, decides to go to a country retreat following a tragic incident involving the death of her husband. 
While there, she obviously has things to work through from this trauma that she's experiencing. That's not really helped by the fact that the men in the village where she is staying are all slightly odd, and not just because they all bear a similar physical resemblance to each other, but their behaviour is odd as well. This is the latest film from Alex Garland, who you would know previously for Ex Machina and Annihilation. He, of course, came to fame with The Beach, which was so many decades ago, but was that book that you just saw everyone reading for a, quite a long time, and then became a film with Leonardo DiCaprio, directed by Danny Boyle. Now, I think I'm right in saying that Adrian and Rob, you both really rate Annihilation, don't you? Annihilation was, I think, my film of the year. It was my film of 2018. Mine too, and I think Ex Machina was one of my films of that year. I'm, al- I'm also a big fan of Dev's, the series he did. Um, I think it was on BBC, it's on Disney Plus now. That was really, really good. Underrated, at least. Oh, interesting. So, what did we think of Alex Garland's latest film, Men? I liked it, I didn't love it. I really liked it. I'm still processing it and I need to see it again. (laughs) I did really like it, but like Annihilation, I just need to go back and see if there's actually a lot of substance to it or if it's a quite striking exploration of ultimately some very, very simple themes. I'm not entirely sure how much there is to this movie. And that was a problem that I had with Annihilation where it was like, As the film went on, it seemed to become less interested in the ideas and more interested in the striking visuals and the weird sound design. So I didn't entirely feel the love for that movie. But Rob, why did you... So when you say that you liked it but you didn't love it, what were some of the issues that you had with it, but what were some of the things that you liked about it? It's a bit unfair, of course, to compare it to Annihilation. You know, I I posted a thing when they released the first trailer for Men saying, a pagan horror directed by Alex Garland, starring Jesse Buckley and Rory Kinnear. This would have to try hard not to be my film of the year. For me, Annihilation was such an inspired, subtle mediation on themes of transformation and change. In that, it was the context of a science fiction novel, uh, sorry, sorry, science fiction movie, um, with a group of women sort of passing into this bubble within which the laws of physics and biology and chemistry have become mutable. And the idea of change and transformation, often meaning death, is actually one that carries through, I think, quite strongly to men. But unlike with Annihilation, it didn't play with it as interestingly and with as much, I guess, nuance as I think his, his previous film did. Despite the fact, you know, I love, I love a good pagan horror. Mm. Yeah, Adrian, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, um, I mean, Annihilation's interesting because obviously it's based on um, source material that's not an original Alex Garland creation. I mean, it's based on the Southern Reach trilogy. But I read that it was very, very, um, sorry, but I read that it was very, very loosely adapted. So it kind of became more of, of his ideas than yeah. was yeah, his preoccupations rather than what was in the original source novel. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the novels only may, I haven't, I've still got them sitting on the pile next to my bed. I, I think, I mean, I preferred Annihilation. I think I just found it a lot more interesting. I'm a massive folk horror fan. I found myself looking at it more on the technical side. I was more how did they do that kind of thing, which obviously took me out of the film and probably showed I wasn't as engaged with it as I was with, say, Annihilation or Ex Machina. I mean, I think, you know, it's it's, it's common knowledge that Rory Kinnear is, plays all the male roles within the village. 
and that's well done it's interesting but i i i found myself looking at that as one and one of those completely threw me out of the movie because of the un, the uncanny valley thing but i think it's a film i want to i want to see again i need to give it give it a while and then i'll revisit it when it comes out probably on home end but i think i can see it's one of those films that's going to be a lot of dissertations and things written on it the scoring on this film hasn't been particularly high and i think that a lot of people have just not got on with this film and in a way this film is as you said adrian is a film studies student dream come true particularly if they are studying horror films because there is a lot of the bread and butter stuff of horror movies in this film and it evokes a lot of other horror films yeah, I mean, to be fair, though, I mean, it's it's one of those films that how the hell would you cut a trailer for this film? Very, I mean, the trailer's very effective, but it you've got to keep something back. And obviously, we'll get on to that. It's a tough one because it's a very art house horror movie that's possibly more interesting to read about. And I mean, I've been reading quite a few articles after seeing it, just trying to get my head around the ending. But I, I think... It was an interesting thing. See, I saw it on opening night. It was sold out. I mean, admittedly, it was in the smallest screen in my, my local Everyman in Newcastle. But it's, um, there were some interesting reactions from the audience. Just a quick point there. We will have a spoiler section in this episode. I don't think that we'll be able to talk about the film properly without a spoiler section. No, but no. because I saw this... So we're recording this on Saturday the 4th of June. I saw it yesterday at the Great Northern Odeon, and it was a lunchtime screening. It was quite busy. It was in a small screen. Certain members of the audience just weren't into the idea of this film, but also weren't into the idea of leaving. I just got the impression that was going to be the kind of audience it was, so I sat quite towards the front of the, fi- of, of the screen. So I couldn't really hear them being annoying, but I did hear a few people shushing them quite a few times during the film. Then at the end, in the quite memorable climax to this film if you'd have just heard the audience reaction from those people you'd have thought you were watching something like airplane they found that hysterically funny and it was like okay so you just are not on board for this film i don't know entirely how you've ended up in this cinema because this is another this this is the kind of film that you would stumble into blind but they just couldn't stop laughing at what they were watching. I th- isn't it the sort of reaction that I remember seeing Crash, uh, the Cronenberg film, when I saw that, I mean, I saw it at the LFF, but when I saw it on, on its original release, where it's at the, what's now the Odeon Tottenham Court Road, which is the closest cinema to Westminster it could play, because it was actually banned in Westminster. There were people there, and it was kind of nervous laughing and people not sure what to make of it. And that was how they sort of vocalised it. They were, I think people were very uncomfortable. And I think this is the same. I mean, it's because the ending we'll get to, but it goes there and then it keeps going. And I think it's the fact that it keeps going that's probably sort of freaking people out. It was, and it's like, and I have to assume that this was in some ways, a nervous reaction to this film. But they weren't nervously laughing. It um, it actually reminded me when I saw the Borat film, where you would laugh and laugh and laugh, and then you'd stop, but then you'd start laughing again because it was still really, really funny what had just happened. And it was that sort of laughter, and it was like... And it actually added to the hysteria of the piece a little bit, but it was like, I don't think you really should have come to see this one. I think maybe you'd have been a bit happier if you'd have seen The Lost City or something, because I just don't think you... I don't know how you ended up in here. 
But what was your audience's reaction like? I think by the end, there were just sort of, there was sort of nervous gasps. And I mean, it was the everyman, so it's a slightly more arty crowd than the lo- local cine world, yeah. where, it, where obviously it's not going to be playing. I think there was sort of nervousness and just kind of, I can't believe they're doing this. And they just kept going. And then there were a lot of people talking afterwards. I mean, annoyingly, the people sitting next to me decided to have a just conversation in regular voices during the end credits. Because I'm a staunch one for not talking during films. When the credits come on, I kind of think, that's fine. Oh, yeah, but not in a regular voice, just kind of just talking. (laughs) Absolutely. It's like, if if you're not talking in your regular voice, then you're clearly not engaging with the film at all anymore, so you can just leave. Yeah, you can basically fuck off and leave and get out. indeed. Yeah, I saw it at the um, West Norwood Picture House in their screen one, and it was lovely. It's got a sort of almost like... um, circular not like a dome but like almost like a cornice on the ceiling that felt very um folky and very quite quite appropriate for the space and i think was was, there any pagan iconography not not that i saw i was keep i was keeping an eye out for the green man but he uh, Mm. he didn't make an appearance yeah so what was the audience reaction like when you saw it rob well i think it was just me and one other guy and and i didn't hear from him at all so all right, okay. Yeah, it will be interesting to see what this film does at the cinema. I don't think it's going to do that much money. I think it might have some weird word of mouth. I think people will be talking about the ending. Well, you can imagine it's going to have a life at the Prince Charles, for example. Yes, it will do. Hmm. That's the thing. I think it will play at that sort of cinema quite a lot. Okay, so without getting into spoilers just yet, what were some of the elements of this film that we thought worked? I think the location, I mean, it was very sort of folk horror, the, the isolated house. I think the way they used the landscape was really good. Um, I mean, the performances are all great, including Papa Ezidu, who's the husband, who's not in it that much. But, you know, he's been in things like Gangs of London and I May Destroy You. Those performances were good. Um, I think I like the score. I mean, I'm a big fan of Ben Salisbury and Jeff Barrow, who've scored all of Garland's work. I mean, Annihilation, Ex Machina. They also did Devs. And there's a great soundtrack called Drock because they originally scored Dread, but then their score was unused and they went with another composer. And obviously Dread was written by Garland as well. I did not know that they did an unused score for Dread. It's called Drock. It's really, really good. So there's a lovely, lovely vinyl box set. <laughs> it's probably on Spotify, but it's worth listening to because it's, it's very much in that kind of wheelhouse of Annihilation, Ex Machina. Oh, wow. And what's the significance of it being called Drock? Well, that's, isn't that the, that's the swear word that they used in, Dread, in Judge Dread, the original cartoon strip. It was always Drock it. I think it basically means fuck. That's right, yeah. It's the word that they used in 2000 AD because they obviously couldn't use fuck, so it's all drock. Which, given some of their comic strips, I'm surprised they didn't just do it. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I'd agree with you. I thought it's interesting that you say that you were looking at the technical aspects of the film more than kind of getting into the film. I found myself a little bit with that as well. In terms of how she's framed when she's walking out in the countryside, it's all with these very, very wide-angle lenses and it's really big countryside so even though it's supposed to be all out in the open you still get the sense that things are closing in on her if it's the sky or the trees or something she does seem to be 
quite dwarfed and also and the just tunnel as well isn't it i mean it's mm. everything's kind of closing in i mean it's weird because it's the first garland film that's not been shot in scope it's because it's 185 which gives you slightly more headroom but it's still quite claustrophobic the way they framed her and the, the the house it's an old country house so it's quite small low ceilings and it's very dark painted there's sort of you know the red womb like colors um but it's all very sort of coming down on her yeah, she is framed, often centre of frame. So she's always on display and there's nowhere for her to hide, really. And I thought that was a very interesting choice because, of course, the theme of this film is all about male control. And I thought this was a film that was like, it was interesting to watch from a filmmaking perspective in terms of those sort of choices. And interesting to watch from a thematic and symbolic perspective in terms of the choice of imagery in that respect, on a character level, it just left me a bit cold. So the tunnel obviously has like, you know, birthing, and that's all really interesting. And as you said, the interior of the house is very, very womb-like. All that stuff I thought was good. That's the kind of stuff that I think that the film students write about horror movies are just going to have a field day with that. But Rob, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think partly Jessie Buckley is one of my favourite actors. I think her performance in The Lost Daughter last year, I, you know, she was Oscar nominated, I think, for Best Supporting Actress. It's probably my, it was probably my favourite performance last year. Mm. But here the issue is that she's essentially playing a character who's defined by trauma. And we don't really know much more about her than that. And she's come to this place to basically try and escape, to get some space. And obviously, yeah, Irony finds herself confronted by these uncanny assortment of yeah it's you know all, all the male characters being played by Rory Kinnear you know again love Rory Kinnear sort of seen him on stage a few times he's great in everything he does for me I think there are a few great sequences in the film one involving the tunnel especially as she as she proceeds further down it and a couple involving the house that I think we'd probably have to wait till spoilers to talk about but I didn't I just didn't think it necessarily held together I, I, again, I really wanted to love it. And there's a lot of interesting stuff in there involving nature. And I, I've mentioned the green man earlier. We we'll, can discuss him a bit more in spoilers. And the idea of change and transformation, sometimes involving death. But yeah, again, this this felt like, a, as, you know, as, you, as you both said, like a film school thesis. I was never as fully engaged with it as I wanted to be. I mean, the forbidden fruit thing is a little yeah. on the nose. Although I think the film leans into that. Because then, because obviously, you know, you've got the character of Jeffrey, who's the um, Harper's renting from, who is meant to be, you know, slightly absurd. And it is obviously his response. Oh, scrumping. It's, mm. yeah, you know, very much a kind of um, upper middle class British stereotype. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's even got the, um, he's very much the gammon, isn't he? I mean, he's, very, yes. he's got, <laughs> even got the red, he's got the barber jacket, the check shirt and tie and the red trousers. Yes. And the, and the teeth. Yeah. But he's the nearest you get to a vaguely sympathetic male character in the, in the film. Well, he gets one line, which we can discuss in spoilers, that's really quite re- revealing and actually quite, yeah, gives him an extra dimension. He also gets um, a line, because I know what you mean, Rob, about the forbidden fruit is directly referenced and it is leaning into it. He also gets a very, very interesting line uh, later on in a pub that I think is a very, very clever line. And it's a shame that this film wasn't more of that, but we'll talk about that in spoilers. This really reminded me, even though I liked the film that I'm going to compare it to more, this really reminded me of Antichrist, the Lars von Trier film. And 
that film in the end credits had a horror film consultant as one of the credits and it could have been like just Lars von Trier throwing his mate some work and saying yeah just watch some horror films and just come out with all the themes and stuff and we'll try and work that in but that film seemed to be a thesis on horror cinema as much as an actual story and there were certain things about that in this film as well that I thought yeah this seems to be that you have set yourself a thesis that you wanted to dramatize you've not entirely dramatized it there's a lot of things here to use one of the things that we often say on the podcast now writers who use subtext and they're all cowards Um, this was one of those films where it's like yeah why not just go for good old-fashioned text and just say it well i mean talking fox wouldn't have been out of place in this one to be honest no and you do actually get a shot of an animal don't you that um of a dead animal that becomes more and more consumed by maggots and stuff Mm. and it's like what are you trying to say with this that yeah for that for me is the core that image is that the core of the film you know as i've said said a couple of times on this episode alex garland's main themes are of change and transformation and how that is tied to death and this isn't really a spoiler because it's more more it's more it's not it's a thematic point rather than a plot point the first time that we see the deer it's it's you know freshly dead it's lying you know amid the trees tracking through its eye socket and then we see you know basically like this 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 universe contained inside it and when we pull out, it's covered in maggots, and it's yeah, it is the idea of decay and transformation, and you've got the the sort of the base relief. I don't think I don't know if base relief is the right way to describe. It. You've got like the relief of the Green Man. Are we, are we going to discuss the Green Man now, or should we save that for spoilers? Yeah, what's the Green Man? Uh, the Green Man. It's, a, it's a, he's a symbol of rebirth. It's a, he's a very ancient and um, pagan symbol. And it's usually basically a man made of leaves. Uh, and it appears as a carving in the church in this film. And you see its expression change depending on the lighting or depending on the time of day. And it's, it was a very popular motif. It was, it was one of the inspirations behind the character of, we think behind the character or related to the character of the Green Knight in Arthurian legend. The idea of, you know, uh, of seasons and change. Well, the green, I mean, the green, recent Green Knight movie does lean into that quite heavily, doesn't it? Yes. You know, as also, actually, it's um, The Wicker Man, because they had the name of um, the tavern is, um, uh, in Summer Isle, is uh, The Green Man, I think. Yes, I think you're right. Yeah, I think the most fans of horror cinema would immediately pick up on The Wicker Man there, which makes it really interesting that it's in a church. When you look at what The Wicker Man was about, the clash of what's seen as like an ancient perverted religion with this true religion that is Christianity. Here it seems to be suggesting this all comes from the same place and is all problematic. Yeah, one of the things about Alex Garland, I think one of his themes is Corrupted Eden. Mm. I mean, all of his films take place in quite a beautiful, seemingly idyllic location that swiftly turns out to be, this is corrupted and it's dangerous. And his previous two films, it's like, this is corrupted and dangerous, from a certain point of view, but it is beautiful if you look at it from a slightly different point of view. The same way that Cronenberg would talk about, well, a virus is only scary from the point of view of the person who's been attacked by it. If you're the virus itself, then you're having a pretty good day. And that was one thing here that I thought there wasn't as much of. I thought this was one, it didn't seem as interesting in that regard, because it's like, well, the thesis you've set up for yourself is all about male control and male rage and male oppression basically the incels <laughs> yeah yeah kind of well not just incels but like kind of but the thousands of years of patriarchy that have just led to incels being the latest incarnation of this 
And it's like, that's fine, but I think it kind of reduces what you can do with your fallen or corrupted or changed Eden thing that you seem to be doing in all of your films. I mean, even, you know, The Beach is like a corrupted Eden, isn't it? I mean, that's... Yeah, I I didn't think that Cotson was that well established as a location. Yeah, so Cotson's the place where she goes to stay, isn't it? Yeah. And obviously the very revealingly named Cotson, the birthplace of man. Yep. Yeah, I would have liked to have a better idea of the kind of... Because there are some key locations. I mean, there's the house, there's the woods, there's the railway tracks, there's the pub. There's the church. A couple of wide shots of the village and you can kind of see the church and a couple of the buildings, but there's not really a sense of where everything sits. Yeah, and I thought that was a problem as well. I completely agree with you there, Rob, that it was like... Maybe it was it was a limitation because of the budget, because Rory Kinnear plays all the men, but it's like... Well, they saved some money there. We're not getting... Yeah, yes, that's a really good point. But it's like, we're not getting a sense of where things are in this village or of this village as being a place. Well, even around the house, I found it was difficult because she walks through the hedge, so you know there's a car park and the hedge and then a small bit of the house. But then when later on things are happening around other doors and entrances and it's sort of like, well, where where is this? I've got, I don't know where this job... How the job place works out. Even though she does a couple of tours for her friend you still don't really have that sense of geography. And I think it's one of those things where when she does the tours for the friend, at least in one of those times, that's been played as a suspense scene. So you're Mm. not really paying attention to the space, you're paying attention to the suspense element. Yeah. It was interesting in the way that it used some very, very traditional elements of horror filmmaking, as interesting in how it didn't quite get them right, in the way that you think that a more, I don't know, journeyman horror director might just understand those rules a bit better and i'm sure that alice garden said well i'm not really interested in those rules and it's like yeah but you are leaning heavily into horror cinema here and one of the key things is establishing space for your characters and if you don't do that then you can end up with things like this film where the space doesn't really seem to work or add anything which is unusual given that all of the other films can take place in sort of a confined area if you like but you know in ex machina you know where everything is annihilation you've got a sense of the the space or uh, i can't remember what it's called now the within that shimmer is it like area it's like area x or something yeah it's the shimmer isn't it but it's you know that it's expanding but even when they're in there you know that the deeper they go the more the more the effects the bigger the effects are on nature and at a cellular level and things change more and even when dread which you know like the raid you know where you are within the building yeah it's very very well set up i think this is the first time that alex garland has kind of failed to establish space in a good way which is quite interesting because this i think is the on the surface the least ambitious in terms of its setting of all of his films rob one thing for you i was listening to the film cast which used to be called the Slash Film Cast, and a lot of the people on there were talking about how incredible it was that Rory Kinnear was doing all these roles and they should get like a special award for it. And Jeff Canada, who is an actor, as well as being like a podcaster and a broadcaster, said that is a very, very traditional thing in theatre to have a single person playing the role of everyone, say, that the main character meets. So I was wondering because you have a very strong theatrical background, you act. I mean, you're going from one play to another right now. How did you feel about that in terms of, did that seem as novel to you as it might do to other people? 
I, I enjoyed it. I think I think he's very good in it, and I think he he manages to kind of subtly distinguish them. I mean, beyond the uh, sort of hair and makeup, to subtly distinguish them in a way that doesn't feel overstated. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, multi rolling is an aspect of theatre, but it's not one that I immediately associate. I'd associate it more with the kind of sort of kind hearts and coronets, Doctor Strange love, than I do with. Yeah, I, I'm not quite sure I, I get the immediate reference to theatre that, that they're talking about. But no, I, I think it's effective. And actually in this, it's not just Kind Hearts and Coronets, etc., where it's being played for comedy and to show an actor's comic chops. In here, it's kind of, it's serving the key thematic point of the film. Yeah, indeed. But it is, it does kind of warm my heart that you said Kind Hearts and Coronets, because that's the first thing I went to when I was watching the film, thinking it always been like Kind Hearts and Coronets, without a Guinness doing all the roles. But you're right, it's for two very, very different reasons. Well, before we get into spoilers, is there anything else to say about this movie? Not really. I mean, I, I did like it. I just think I need to see it again to get a full idea of how much I liked I need to see, Yeah, I would agree. I need to see it again in terms of, to be honest, how much there is to this movie. Because it could be one of those where it's like, no, you got everything there is to get from a thematic level on that first viewing. Yeah, I mean, I hope not. Mm, but we'll talk about it in spoilers because I'm kind of hoping that as well. But I'm I'm just wondering what other things, yeah, you guys are going to come out with. So no pressure. <laughs> I'll get the other Adrian to do it. Yeah, you'll get the little schoolboy Adrian. Yes. Rob, how about you? No, I think that's it for me. I think everything else should probably fall within the uh, spoiler section. Well, let's go into spoilers. I'll play a bit of the trailer so that people know when they're going into the spoiler section. Or you could use the um the echoing the uh, the voice echo. <laughs> That's very good, actually. Do you want to do it? Um, I won't be able to do it as well as the because I'm not an echo, and I, I won't be able to layer it like she does. But the uh, the uh, yeah, well, just that was just pretty much it, wasn't it? Just huh? No, I've lost it now. It's gone now. Adrian, do you want to stab? Oh, oh, oh. No. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> <laughs> you do realise this is all staying in. Um, that was actually <laughs> Jesse Buckley doing that as well. She's credited at the end. Well, she's a... A soprano. Professional musician. Yes, now you're going to hear some lovely echoing. And after that, you'll be in the spoiler section. So if you haven't seen men yet, please don't listen until you have seen men, because we will be talking about some spoilers and there are some quite surprising elements to this film. Uh, Yes, so thank you for listening. And please come back after you've seen men. You are now in the spoiler section, and we will now talk freely about the film Men. Yes, so guys, anything particularly memorable from this movie? <laughs> um, well, the ending's a bit of... <laughs> that ending was... <laughs> You can cut all that, sorry. Let's not dive straight into the ending, because I think we'll just get stuck on that. <laughs> yeah. I thought that Rory Kinnear as the little boy was creepy because it's just so kind of uncanny valley but in a good way but it did remind me of an episode of this time with alan partridge yes when he has his head trans yeah for the little for the, yes for the where there's like a flashback to his school days but it's his face on a young boy <laughs> and it's 
funny but so unsettling and that did remind me of that i was thinking oh now i'm thinking of this time with alan partridge i found it unnerving because it's the shock but also i mean and you've got the kid with the mask which is very wicker man but then it was that uncanny valley that you knew it was a de-aged rory kinnear on a kid and it just didn't quite blend properly for me anyway and it just took me out slightly i was suddenly just like a fucking list broken here and a kid hmm. it, it just was very stra- very strange but just it, that was the one time because obviously the rest of it it's makeup and costume and then there's a some vfx where they've just done uh, multiple passes to put him into the scene as all the characters which you can do fairly seamlessly now but that the digital, the, the uncanny valley thing was still a bit of a misstep, I think. I, mean, I know what you mean. It was one of those where I think that Alex Garland will say, no, that is the effect I'm going for. It's not supposed to look 100% realistic. It's supposed to look a little bit strange, not supposed to be comfortable looking at it. It's like, yeah, that's fine, but it just bounced me out the film a little bit. And Yeah. I don't think some of it is just like League of Gentlemen, isn't it? Where they've just, it's just the way it's edited. There's probably less shots than you remember of them actually with multiple Rory Kinnears. Because a lot of it is just doubles and back of the head kind of thing. And then it, I think you just kind of go with it. I mean, what did you think about what that meant? I mean, obviously, because it's never mentioned, it's never alluded to. So it's obviously, I think, in her head or how she's seeing it. But you'd never really understand what she's looking at necessarily because you know they don't talk about it it's just there oh, sorry is this in terms of the birthing or in ter- specifically the birthing or no in just in terms of the multiple Kinnears well I think that goes back to the idea of the green man because you've got the, the naked guy who's wandering around who gets increasingly I don't know f- yeah floral <laughs> yes <laughs> yes, yes. yes. Um, what's, the, what's the opposite of exfoliated foliated foliaged foliaged yeah represents the green man that kind of being the root of masculinity and in that obviously the idea of well sorry the idea birth being a female property or the the ability to to give birth and how that's essentially in this kind of usurped by the male figure and the idea of this continuity of men going on and on and on and but never changing but never changing exactly and you know variations on a type hmm and that's what I took from the film. It was like, okay, so what you're saying is all men are the same and they're all primitive. And no matter the dressings of civilization, they all come from this incredibly ancient kind of myth that is inherently violent, self-pitying. And I think there's a lot of truth to this, but it's like that seemed to just be it. And I thought, okay, so that's good in a way that you've dramatised that. So that's what we have to take from this. Okay, that's fine then. In this case, I think it's also the reason this happens to her is dealing with obviously the trauma of her very, of the death, whether it's accidental or otherwise, of her, you know, manipulative, abusive husband. Mm. But it was interesting that all the men weren't him. Yeah, I mean, that's, I guess maybe that would have been a bit on the nose. That would have been a bit too, yeah, yeah she's just turned up and her dead husband's everywhere. Because, you know, even though all the men are variations on Rory Kinnear, I guess it's like, oh, I guess that's just a very inbred population that's strangely lacking in any women. Well, yeah, some villages in the UK, that's totally implausible, isn't it? <laughs> the very shallow gene pool. I did think, is there a little bit of yokel shaming going on here? <laughs> the, um, because they all speak... <laughs> is that a thing now? <laughs> but they all speak with that kind of southwest England accent. It's like, 
what you take from this is that they all look the same because they're all inbred, which is obviously like a stereotype of those more remote areas of Cornwall and stuff like that. But that's just a amusing aside that I was thinking as I was watching this film. But they are all her husband because at the end, after all those births, the final birth just reveals her husband. And it's like, okay, so it all came down to she's now back with her husband. That was kind of what I was alluding to when talking about how this seems less interesting about a corrupted Eden than his previous films because they always had change in them. This is mm. actually... A continuity. Yeah. Well, and each bloke is a different aspect of masculinity, I guess, or her husband's personality, I think. And is it also sort of saying that your, that your husband is to some degree, you know, your husband was to some degree a product of all of this? Generations of masculinity and, and it's... Um, what's the name of the landlord character again? Jeffrey. Jeffrey has that line basically about his father, his father saying, oh, you've got the makings of a disgraced military man. Of a failed military man. Failed military man. And that clearly being something that stuck with him and something that he's carried forward. Yep. I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, you know, it's basically um, Philip Larkin's This Be The Verse. Man hands on misery to man, it deepens like a coastal shelf. But I didn't think that was a particularly insightful thing to end a film on. I thought, okay, um, okay that's kind of what I kind of assume from your title, men, I kind of thought that would be that. So, yeah. I think this would be an interesting double bill with the other Jesse Buckley film, um, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. I definitely, yeah, because she's, she plays, recently she's been playing a lot of characters, including in The Lost Daughter, dealing with alienation. Mm. Mm. I quite like the fact that she was not overly likeable. Because you're thinking, well, you are someone going through trauma, you're not going to be outwardly sunny she never apologised in this film. And there were like a few scenes where I thought she could apologise here or just say sorry, but I don't think she ever says the word sorry, which is good. I and mean, that's the whole point of the film. But I think she does when she nicks the apple. Well, she does the apple, but then that turns out to be a joke, doesn't it? That's right, yeah, yeah. It's kind of... Um, but in terms of like the death of her husband, it's like she doesn't ever apologise there or kind of admit a complicity because it was obviously his decision. Well, it's also alluded to that it may have been an accident as well that it's not necessarily suicide because there was the thing about him breaking into someone else's apartment, trying to climb down and possibly slipping. And it's also interesting, of course, that his wounds are recreated. Yeah. It's interesting because I thought, okay, so now they're all taken on the form of him with the smashed leg and the bifurcated hand, which was a great effect. But I thought, okay, so you're really leaning into this now that her husband is this and all men are the same. To the point where it just leaves no doubt when yeah, he is born again. Yeah, shall we? are we going to get on to the shunting? In a bit, but um, I think there's just a few other things to talk about. But Rob, why did you think that was interesting, sorry? Again, I think I found it more academically interesting than I did necessarily dramatically interesting. Which I think is quite a big thing about this film. I found it more practically interesting because it was an amazing effect. I mean, that bit when the hand is being pulled out, when the knife's been stuck through it, as the hand goes through the letterbox and it withdraws through the letterbox and just slices the arm lengthwise. It was like, well, one, I can remember a time when this would have got the film in 18. And two, that's had a great effect. Yeah. <laughs> one of the stars, and maybe the biggest star of this film, is David Simpson and his team. He was the visual effects supervisor. And again, on the Slash Filmcast, they were talking about the fact that at the beginning, they talked about having CGI to show... Rory Kinnear changing from one version of a man to the other at the end, then decided that's not really working, let's go practical. This film is just a celebration of practical effects. 
Yeah, from the birthing sequence, because that was definitely part done practically. As you've got um, Rory Kinnear re- emerging from the remains of his of his previous self, all the different various sizes. Had you read that that was also like a CGI thing? Because I thought that was entirely practical. I thought they were just using... I think there's quite a bit of... C- I think it's a good blend of CG and practical. All right, that's actually gone down in my estimations then, because I thought that was all achieved practically. <laughs> that's a good sign of CG then, when it's invisible. Or yeah. when it's, you know, it's blending, because there's definitely some CG in there. Okay. Well, before we get onto that, and I promise we will do, one of the interesting things about this was that this is a film that's more about control than sexual domination. It's actually a weirdly chaste film in a way, because I think it's kind of saying that a male view of sexuality is a best adolescent and often just childlike. So you then get the scene with the vicar when he basically blames her for putting sexual thoughts into his head, which obviously is it goes right back to Adam and Eve and the fruit of knowledge and sin. But also the fact that women are often blamed for male lust. That scene I thought was quite good because it was a weird inversion of a sex scene. It was like he was talking as if he was wooing her, but was basically talking about his disgust for the images that she was putting into his head. She has the phallic upper hand in that scene because she is holding a knife that is just so, in one shot, so clearly placed against her groin that it's like, what are you trying to say with that, Alex? And there is full penetration. And it's also the scene with the vicar where he's basically, it's the misogynistic reaction where he's basically blaming her for everything that happened. But he's also got his hand on her knee, which is really uncomfortable. Yeah, because up up until the moment before that, he seems very sincere and really like, you know, he's like, he's going to be a, a figure of comfort to her. And all of a sudden the hand goes on the knee and you're like, yeah. And you're waiting for her to, or for someone to sort of, oh, sorry, didn't, you know, and then it just stays there, and then you realise just how awful it is, and just not. She doesn't really react to his hand on her knee, whereas the, you should have snapped his fucking hand off. But that whole thing where it just that turns on like a sixpence, doesn't it? I mean, it starts out that he's this caring vicar, and then really just as bad, possibly even one of the worst of all of the the men she encounters there. What's interesting that, yeah, because I think the vicar placing their hand on you to provide comfort, it's so ingrained in us that... Um, Unless you're a choir boy. The, you know, well, that's the thing, obviously. It's like, I mean, it's you know, slightly different. This isn't the Catholic Church, although, of course, she is Irish. So you're thinking, well, she was probably brought up in a Catholic background. So therefore, there will be some guilt over the fact that her husband committed suicide, maybe. I think it's actually pretty much suggested that he did even though they do offer that element of doubt that it could have been an accident. But yeah, it just brings all that in as well, that the church is excused from the rules sometimes, that it can lay the hand on a woman's knee during those times of offering comfort. But it's like there is so much else going on on around that from the perversion of the church and yeah, the abuses uh, that it's responsible for, that yes, you immediately just become uneasy watching it. And then again, the subtext becomes text when he says things like, what do you think that if you'd have apologised, you wouldn't have driven him to it and actually wrote it down? What is it that he says? He says, men do strike women sometimes. And it's not nice, but it does happen. And if you'd have apologised, then he might not have killed himself. That, I thought, was the best scene of the film because it was yeah. just so corrupted. 
I mean, he also says something along the lines of, I can't remember the exact line, it's like, it's not it's not a cardinal sin or it's not a hanging offence or something like that. Yeah, it's straight out of Daily Mail. But I thought that was a good example of where the scene, where the film was dramatising its themes. It was shocking. I thought it was earned. And you've got two great actors on screen. So that, I thought, was really sold. There's another scene in the bar when Jeffrey won't let her pay for a drink, which again is like that element of control. And it's all coming across as chivalry and politeness, but it's still kind of putting her in her place. And he says, which I think is actually the best line of the film, it seems that you don't have legal tender. Hmm. So yeah, so there is a real intelligence going on in this film. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, I think there are, as we've said, some some great sequences um, a lot of the time involving her being stalked by the Green Man figure, who actually lo- looks a lot like um, Rory Kinnear did in Penny Dreadful, where he played Frankenstein. There's definitely mm. a, a, t- a touch of that. And um, and I really liked the... I thought the tunnel scene was very tense when she's venturing into it towards the, the green light at the end. And she's doing the voice and she's getting the echo back. And there's a sense of real joy, but it's tinged with dread because you don't know, cause you know that sound is going to bring something back. Well, that's actually the first birthing scene of the film, isn't it? Because what it is, is that she is creating something. So she is uh, creating this lovely sound with her voice. But at the end of that, you see the figure rise up, the green man figure rise up, that naked man. And it's, and again, that goes into the siren call and things like that, and something that men are going to respond to. But they're not going to respond to it in a good way. And it being a tunnel, it's like, okay, so there's something has been born here. But then to extrapolate that, it's like, well, is, is that her fault? And it's like, I don't think it is. I think it's one of those things that she has created something that's beautiful, but that has been perverted by this man that has risen up. And again, there's like a whole history of that as well, particularly around herbal medicine and the way that women who were herbalists would often be accused of witchcraft. Yeah, there's a whole history of oppression there as well. And then, of course, she she runs from the tunnel and they make a big point of because they'd marked out the t- one of, of everything we said about them not doing the geography. The one bit where she goes down the bank, it's very clear what that piece of land looks like with the posts and everything. So they make a point of you know that she's run past that point and then she's lost in the sort of gully where the railway line used to be and then runs into that blocked up tunnel and she can't go any further, she has to try and escape across the field. And what do we think of the blocked-up tunnel, sorry? Heavy-handed Freudian symbolism. <laughs> Rob, what did you think? Yeah, a little bit. Um, although those, the scenes when she's out in the woods made me think a little bit of um, M.R. James, except, you know, it's not a fusty academic who's going to accidentally awaken something. It's, it's, it's this young woman. And, and, you know, the idea that the tunnel and the rest of it all has that certain resonance, especially with the church. It plays with some tropes in interesting ways, and it's clearly, you know, there's a proud tradition of a pagan or folk horror. But I just, yeah, I didn't think there was, it had the thematic complexity to really draw me in. Indeed. But on that note, yes, it was a railway tunnel. And of course, a train going into a tunnel is one of the great suggestive images that is often used in films like at the end of North, North by Northwest. Northwest. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, there is humour, there is thought in this film. Which kind of makes you wish you'd liked it a bit more. But uh, but anyway, I've kept you waiting long enough. So yeah, what were your thoughts as you were watching the end of this film or the climax of this movie? I thought it was impressive body horror. And it was like, okay, I, I'm, you know, I, I think I understand what you're doing here thematically. 
But again, it's just a point where essentially the, the, the protagonist is passively, well, not, not entirely passively, is just watching something play out. There's no real agency. You're just kind of watching this phenomenon play out. And then there wasn't a massive payoff to it because it's a conversation with her ex which essentially just ends with her rejecting him again, and then you don't, and then there's no outcome to that. There's, I think there's a suggestion that she's found some peace with the scene that comes after the first credit, where her friend turns up and she's sitting on the steps and seems to be at peace. But then I was wondering what happened at that point because her friend turns up, she's sitting on the step covered in blood. <laughs> And you're thinking, well, okay, so what's the sight her friend's going to see? Is is it going to be this birthing, sort of the aftermath of that? Or is she stabbed the Jeffrey? Well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's like, because your point, Adrian, earlier about, is this all in her head? And no one's commenting on the fact that everyone looks like Rory Kinnear. But I thought, if it's in her head, then the film fails and the film is fatally wounded because yeah. it just suggests that she is looking for victimhood. I quite like the fact that this was just an unremarked upon piece of reality that all the guys look the same. Yeah, no, I agree. But Rob, what do you think? Do you have any thoughts about that? No, not really. Again, it's one that's I think is more interesting in concept than it is necessarily. Yeah, again, I, I'll be very interested to read a, a good thesis on this in a couple of years' time. A couple of years? I think you could write one now and it would be... <laughs> well, it, there would be lots of things in there that I think you would read elsewhere. I'd rather write a thesis on Annihilation. Mm, okay, yeah. Yeah, the ending, I did like the ending, because I thought, okay, well, if you're going to go all out on your thesis, and of course they are appropriating the one thing that men can't do, they're having a baby. But men control. But men control, and that's the thing, but... As in, not in a good way, just to make that very clear. Oh, yeah, indeed, yeah. But I think now he's taken as red. But when men do appropriate it, it becomes a force of destruction. There is like, it's the same thing over and over again and there's no change, there's no progression and it is always leading to basically a continuity of this control and this rage and self-pitying. So in terms of the themes, it's like, okay, right, fine. But in terms of a horror spectacle, it was like, I'm loving this. I'm loving the fact that you are doing this. This is strong imagery with some really quite amazing close-ups and it's not the first time that we've seen a fully grown man birthed in horror cinema um there's a Mike Takashi film called Gozu that has that towards the end of it I think Ex- Extro Extro had, that's right yeah which again now is a 15 oh, is having it? been briefly banned yeah it's a 15 I think now because that was an official video nasty wasn't it yeah yeah and there was another one that was also really disturbing oh yeah the Arnold Schwarzenegger film Junior <laughs> just kidding <laughs> which I've actually seen but I'd imagine there is a birth scene in there I would love to watch um, this in a double bill with Junior <laughs> someone's going to program it Prince Charles yeah so yeah as, as a horror spectacle it was great and it is one of those where it's like well how can this get any more extreme oh it can come out of the mouth instead of out of this vagina and it can come out feet first oh yeah that's a way to make it more extreme <laughs> I mean, that is actually the place where the member of the audience uh, that I saw it with just completely lost it. There was a guy in there who just could not stop laughing at that. And it's like, well, I think it's supposed to be quite funny that it's come out feet first from Rory Kinnear's mouth. It's at least supposed to be comically extreme. I just don't think it's as funny as you're laughing at him. You're laughing at it like the way I laugh at the nude wrestling in Borat. But yes, it was uh, quite a striking bit of cinema, that. 
Yeah, I get that. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, to end, I think there's a much more interesting film than this that's playing on Shudder, and everyone should watch it. Um, it's called Lucky. This isn't the Harry Dean Stanton one, I take it. No, no. which is one of Rob's favourite films, I think. Is that, I know. Is that right it's to pr- say, Rob? It's my favourite film of the year when it came out. It is a good film. Now, this one was made in 2020 by Natasha Kamani, who also did Imitation Girl, which was another very, very good film. That was a really good... Yeah, it's very under the skin, wasn't it? Mm, yeah. And also, under the radar, more people should have seen it, but... Um... And a great soundtrack. Oh, I don't remember the soundtrack, but I will take your word for it. Oh, I've got it on vinyl. <laughs> of course you have. It's written by and stars Brie Grant, and it's about this woman. A threatening figure breaks into her house and tries to attack her. She manages to fight him off, and then it happens the next night, and then it happens the next night, and then it happens, and it keeps happening over and over again. And she can't seem to get anyone to believe that this is happening. That is a really, I think, a much more interesting view or take on a lot of the themes that were dealt with in men. If you liked men, or if you didn't like men, and uh, wished it had been a bit more, I would strongly suggest Lucky, which is currently playing on Shudder. So, men, any more for any more? No, I, I think that does it for me. Yeah, I think I'm, uh, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> well, Adrian, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. And if people wanted to follow you on the internet, where can they find you? Um, I'm on Instagram and I'm on Letterboxd. So, um, at Adrian J. Zach. Brilliant, thank you very much. And Mr. Wallace, how about you? Uh, If you're looking for me online, you can find me on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace. You can also find my writing out of all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. Rob and I do a second podcast devoted entirely to the movie Highlander. Uh, If you're a fan, I recommend checking it out. It's called Another Time McLeod. You can listen to that wherever you're listening to this. You can also find that on Twitter at McLeod Time. And yeah, if you want to drop us an email um, about Highlander, you can reach us at whowantstopodforever at gmail.com. Indeed. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. My writing can be found at filmstories.co.uk, lovehorror.co.uk, electric-shadows.com. More importantly, if you want to follow this podcast, then that is at MovieRobcast on Twitter. And if you like what you heard and want to rate and review us, then please do so wherever you listen to your podcasts. It is always much appreciated. It helps us with our rankings in those algorithms and whatnot. So any feedback would be warmly received. On that note, Adrian, thank you again. Thank you. Rob, as always, thank you. Thanks, mate. And thank you for listening. And we will speak to you again very, very soon. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, 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 oh.